Thank you for tuning in to the Tulsa Bible Church Sermons Podcast. You are listening to Pastor Jared Verweil as he continues his sermon series in James. If you would like more information on this, you can visit our website at tulsabible.org. Well, good morning. Great to see you guys this morning, and uh, thanks for being here. Just big thanks to Justin Ennis. Justin was one of the guys that put that little uh, video together for us. We're, we're bouncing a couple uh, that we're trying for sermon bumper videos, they call them. And he just re- did a really good job of contrasting a few things. If you're watching that video, you see a lot of pictures of just chaos and the world, the fallen world that's around us. But in the background, you hear this peaceful, calm music. And it's meant to kind of show Christians living in a fallen world, even though there is chaos and there is all kinds of things going on around us. We have Christ, we have the power of the Holy Spirit, and that should change the way that we look at it, the way that we experience it, and even walking through some of the difficulties in life. So that passage that Tom read for you this morning, hey, welcome to Tulsa Bible Church. This is going to be a really encouraging sermon this morning. I'm going to say as little as words as possible, Brad. This one is in my face today as a teacher. Um, this is a difficult, difficult passage. I did want to make just a one book recommendation for you. And there's many really good books out on the power of the tongue in our words as Christians. So uh, I want to encourage you just in one direction, but uh, there's many others that are available to you. This one's called The War of Words, Getting to the Heart of Your Communication Struggles. It's by Paul Tripp. Uh, He's one of my favorite. He's a go-to author, counselor uh, that I have in, in my library. So if you want to come up and take a look at this book afterwards, it's going to be up here for you. If you need help getting resources or if, if speaking, if communication is one of these, these things that you find yourself personally struggling with and you need some extra resources, our church would love to help you out to get those for you. All right, so just please let us know. We're going to be in James chapter 3 and Verse 1, and we'll just, let's see, what, let's see what happens here, all right? Shakespeare has a, a famous line, Midsummer Night's Dream, though she be but little, she is fierce. That's a theme verse for Marcia Coggins this morning, so this sermon's for you, Marcia. Actually, it's a theme verse for Kennedy Verweil. Though be she is but little, she is, she's a fierce one. Tiny, tiny things can make a massive difference in life. The tongue is a, a very small part of the body, but the implications that it has, the words that we speak, leave an undeniable, massive impression on our relationships, our demeanor, our attitude, just about everything about us. And if you need a, an illustration of small things that make a huge difference, let me just start with Mark Nunley in the world of bees. Whether it's a honeybee, a wasp, a killer bee, or a bumblebee, the average size of a bee is about two millimeters. They are tiny creatures. And if all the bees in the world were gone today, we would have a huge problem on our hands. Did you know that out of the 100 crops that provide Uh, food for the world's population, 70 of them are pollinated by bees. Bees contribute to $30 billion in food production every single year in our world. If the bee population was gone, it was Shakespeare who famously said, if you get rid of all the bees in the world, it'll be four years before humanity crumbles in its population. Bees are tiny, 
tiny insects, and yet they make a huge, huge implication on our world. So does the tongue. Words are tiny things that make a huge difference. And we just came through a a major transition in our study of James. Remember our theme verse for this entire book. Know this, my beloved brothers. James 1, verse 19. Let every one of you be slow to speak, quick to hear, and slow to anger. The first section that we looked at was being quick to hear, and it covers James 1.21 all the way through the end of chapter two. And what we saw in, in this first section of James was three things. He wants us to accept the word humbly at the end of chapter one, to apply the word mercifully, and to advance the word practically. James told us over and over again that biblically speaking, hearing something and applying something go hand in hand. That if you fail to do one, you will inevitably fail to do the other. So all of us need to fight a very um, hard temptation to be long on information, but very short on application. Now James is moving to the second section of his book, and he wants us to be slow to speak. Christians should be slow to speak. And so this morning I wanna look at three things in James chapter three, verses one through 12. You're gonna see the power of words, the production of our words, and then the problem of our words. The power of words is all about control. The production of our words is all about what they reveal, and the problem of our words is all about who we trust. And so we're gonna look at those things. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 15. It's got an interesting verse. It says this, Christ died for all, that those who live might not live for themselves, but for him, for Christ. I can think of nowhere that, the, that is more applicable or that is seen more clearly than with our words. Christ died for us, that we might live for him, that we might speak for him. And so here's the question that I want us all to wrestle with this morning. What needs to happen for God to take us, people who instinctively speak for ourselves and transform us into those who distinctively speak for God? What's it gonna take for God to take us, people who instinctively speak for ourselves, and transform us into people who distinctively speak for God and for Christ? Let's look at James. Number one in your outline, the power of words. What's underneath them? The answer real quickly is control. It's all about control. Look at chapter three, verse one. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, For you know that we who teach will be judged with a greater strictness. Now, Jesus opposed many, many teachers in his ministry, but no teachers quite like he opposed the Pharisees, right? And whenever I read James chapter 3, I can't help but think of this passage in John chapter 3, another chapter 3 in the Bible. Remember who Jesus is speaking to? He's speaking to one of the best teachers, one of the most influential teachers in all of Israel. He was speaking to a Pharisee. And his name was Nicodemus. And like only Jesus can, because only Jesus knows the heart, only God knows the heart, he goes right for the jugular with Nicodemus. And he talks about the new birth. And he says, no man can be born again unless they're born of the Spirit and they're born of water. 
Nicodemus says, he's totally lost. And there's a little verse down in the context in John chapter 3, verse 10, where Jesus speaks to him very directly as a teacher of Israel, and he says a, a convicting question. Are you a teacher in Israel and you do not understand these things? Nicodemus totally missed the boat on a core issue in the Old Testament, and if he was wrong on that one, what else was he wrong about as a teacher of Israel? Later in the Gospels, Jesus will say something like this. To whom much has been trusted, much will be required. And I think that's a strong statement for teachers and pastors, those who are equipping others with the word of God. Uh, Charles Spurgeon was said to be the prince of preachers, and he started a preaching school. Spurgeon Bible College is what it is right now in London. And he had the distinct privilege of taking all of these young pastors applying to be in his college to become preachers and deciding whether or not they were qualified to be in that school or whether they should pursue something else. Spurgeon would sit back and take in all of these applications, all of these, these letters of commitment to his college and decide you're in or you're out. And over and over again, what he did was this. If he had any question, if there was any hesitation in his mind, he would tell the person, ministry is probably not right for you. He said, every person has to have a call to ministry, not just an ability to speak, not just an ability to study, but a call to ministry. And that call is gonna manifest itself at least with one thing. The first sign, Spurgeon says, of a call to ministry is an intense, all-absorbing, all-absorbing desire for the work. And here's what he said. If any student in the room could be content to be an editor or a grocer or a farmer or a doctor or a lawyer or a senator or a king in the name of heaven and earth, let him go his way. Spurgeon says, you wanna be a teacher of God's word? You gotta be called to be a teacher of God's word. And a person who is called has an intense, all-absorbing desire to study and to teach God's word. Y'all know what 2 Timothy 2.15 says? Be diligent to present yourself to God as an approved workman. This is the Iwana verse. Who needeth not to be ashamed, be ashamed, accurately handling or perhaps rightly dividing the word of truth. Be diligent to present yourself to God as an approved workman who does not need to be shamed, accurately handling the word of truth. Now here's what that verse implies. There's a way to accurately handle the scriptures. There's a way to not accurately handle the scriptures. And as a teacher of God's word, you better know what you believe and why you believe it before you communicate that word to other people. There's, there's another aspect of what I think James is talking about. And all of us have heard this little Chinese proverb or quip or whatever it is. You guys have heard this before? Only fools rush in. Most of the time, it's in the context of love, right? It's also in the context of, of a teaching ministry. James gives us a warning, chapter three, verse one, but he also pumps the brakes. Every teacher needs to take time to study, to show themselves as approved, to accurately handle the word of truth. Teachers don't need to rush in and, and not understand fully what they're talking about or how this all fits together. Listen, Moses needed 40 years of training in Egypt before God called him to teach the Israelites. 
He shows up in Egypt, he kills an Egyptian, he buries him in the sand, and God says, nope, you're not quite ready, let's use another 40 years. Go out to the wilderness and tend sheep for, the, for a while in the middle of no man's land. Then he comes back at the, at the age of 80, he's finally ready. Paul had three years where he got direct revelation in Arabia from the Lord. The disciples all had three years with Jesus before they officially started their ministries. Hendricks put it this way, a fog in the pulpit is a mist in the pew. So we get things clear. We understand the word so it can be clear in the minds and the hearts of those who are speaking to. At least we can wrestle with things and talk about things. A lifetime of study of God's word will do at least a couple of things for you. Number one, it'll teach you truth. But number two, it'll keep you humble as a teacher as well. The longer I study God's word, the more and more I realize what I don't know. The worst thing is a teacher who doesn't know what they don't know. Look down at chapter two, or excuse me, verse two. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they would obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder, wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of very great things. Now, from verse one to verse two, James goes from very specific now to general. He started out and he talked about teachers. Verse two, he starts out and he talks about all of us. Teachers, not many of you become teachers. Verse two, all of us are gonna stumble in many ways. And his driving point is that through, though the tongue is very small, its ability to control is massive. A tiny bridle can control a massive horse. A tiny rudder can control a massive ship. Later on, he's going to say a tiny spark can start a massive fire. Hello, Burnco. Burn I, hope, I hope they rebuild that thing. They had some really good barbecue. Don't need, I need more than one location on this. How much more can the tiny tongue control the body? Look at Proverbs chapter 10, verse 8, and you're going to find these little statements all through Proverbs as you read it. The wise of heart will receive commandments, but a babbling fool will come to ruin. Proverbs chapter 17, verse 28. Even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he is deemed intelligent. Two times in verse 2, James talks about stumbling. The Greek word literally means to trip up. Metaphorically, it means to make a mistake. What he's saying is that as Christians, we will all make mistakes, many of them in life. We will all sin, even though we have an identity in Christ, even though we've been redeemed, we're in the process of being redeemed, present tense as well. Therefore, we're all gonna stumble in life, and perhaps nowhere will we stumble more than with our words. The more you speak, the more you sin, Proverbs says. So slow down with all the words. Proverbs 18, verse 21 says this, death and life are in the power of the tongue. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. Here's a, a quick summary of this whole sermon in just one quick sentence. With your words, you can choose life, or with your words, you can choose death, but it's your choice. It is your choice 
what you're going to communicate to other people in your relationships with the things that come out of your mouth. Biblically, listen, it's not just that the tongue controls the body. James tells us that, and it is always and ultimately true. But we have to read James right next to Jesus. Because James says the mouth controls the body. What's my question? Who controls the mouth? Jesus says the heart controls the mouth. It's not what's outside that defiles a person, it's what's inside that defiles a person. And from within, out of the mouth, come evil thoughts, perverse words, slander. Folks, I want to submit to you that every time you open your mouth, every time you utter even one syllable, whatever kingdom is winning the battle of your heart controls the tongue that is speaking. Whatever kingdom that is winning the battle of your heart controls the tongue that is speaking. You and I have never spoken a neutral word in our entire life. Words either communicate life or they communicate death. They are words that are guided by the kingdom of God or the kingdom of self. You get to choose. Make no mistake about it. None of us have ever spoken a neutral word in our life, and none of us ever will. One commentator put it this way. It's not that the tongue steers the ship, speaking of the body, but that the proper helmsman is often not in control. It's not that the tongue shears, steers the ship, but that the proper helmsman is often not in control. Here's the principle. Whatever controls your heart controls your tongue. Is God controlling your heart? If he's not, someone or something else will. And your words will manifest it. Brings me to point two in our outline this morning. The production of words, what do they reveal? Now, I can't fully do this sermon justice without quoting one of my favorite theologians, Forrest Gump. Forrest Gump, in the movie, had run for a long, long time. And he didn't say a whole lot of things when he ran. One of the reasons why I love Forrest Gump is he's just got this big, gnarly David Crowder beard as he's running across America like 60 times. He gets free shoes from Nike by doing it, right? He doesn't say a whole lot of things. Eventually, people find out that he's running across America, and they, it inspires him, motivates him. So a group of people start running right alongside Forrest Gump. And finally, he gets to the point where he's exhausted. He'd been running for a long time, and here's what he says. I had run for three years, two months, 14 days, and 16 hours. And he stops, and he turns, and there's a young guy that's running right next to him. And he says, Hold on, guys, he's about to say something. Forrest says, I'm pretty tired. I think I'll go home now. <laughs> words reveal. Words reveal on the outside what's going on on the inside. Words are like scratching off a lottery ticket to reveal the numbers that are below, or a cell phone that reveals your screen time. Forrest Gump's words revealed that he was tired. He was ready to stop. He changed direction. He went back home. Why don't you look at verse 5, pick this up at the, at the end of verse 5, and how James fleshes this out. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. 
The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. Verse 8, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil. It is full of deadly poison. James used three present tense participles to reveal what can happen with our words. I want you to look back at verse six. Three present tense participles. Words are always staining, they're continually setting, and they're constantly being kindled by hell. Three present tense participles. James is saying that the problem with our words are ongoing, progressive, and they are always before us. Our words are continually spurting out evil, expressing things they shouldn't express. They are polluting, perverting, and destroying. James goes on to say that just about every animal has been tamed by man, but no one can tame the tongue. And what's interesting is when you read verse seven, you can't help but think of what chapter in the Old Testament. Look down at verse seven. What does it sound like? Genesis chapter, chapter one. God made all of the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, the fish of the sea, right? We can't help but think Genesis chapter one when we read verse seven, but hardly anybody thinks of Genesis chapter three when they read verse eight. Verse eight says this, no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. The tongue is a restless evil image suggests a serpent ready to strike with poison. This point, of course, is that the tongue is untamable. That's the same word that we saw in James chapter 1, verse 8, speaking of the double-minded man who is unstable in all of his ways. Just like the waves of a sea are uncontrollable, sinning with our mouths is uncontainable, it's unstoppable. The words we produce on the outside are revealing. At any given moment, They reveal our actions and who we are serving, our minds and what we are thinking, our hearts and who we are worshiping. At any given moment, our words are revealing. They reveal our actions, who we are serving, our minds, what we are thinking, and in our hearts, who we are worshiping. All of us need to understand this very simple point from James chapter three. The reason that we don't say the right things is because we don't believe the right things. Underneath all of the problems in James chapter three is an issue of unbelief. Underneath all of our problems of sin is an issue of unbelief. The reason that we struggle with our words is because we don't believe God and what he says. Paul Tripp put it this way, far too often our words reveal that we are not trusting in Christ and instead we are trying to be him. The power of words, number one the production of words, number two. Number three is the problem of our words. Look down at verse nine. It says, with it we bless our Lord and Father with the tongue, mouth, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing, James says, my brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. As as believers, we tend to make the worst kind of error 
when it comes to our words. There's a Pharisee at one point in time who, who came to Jesus and, and he challenged him with a question. We talk about this often at TBC. It's a lawyer. He says, Jesus, what is the most important commandment in all the Old Testament? Remember what Jesus said? Didn't even hesitate. Just comes right out and says it. The very first, the most important, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Then he says the second is like it. It's to love your neighbor as yourself. And so Jesus answered in two parts. The great commandment and the second commandment. I don't know if you guys remember these things. A while back, they used to make something called filing cabinets. They were these metal cabinets about this high, two-drawer filing cabinets, and what you did was you took like physical pieces of paper, and you put them in files, and you like logged them away. Brad, you probably remember these files, cabinets. They used to exist. They used to be pretty popular. Now they just, we just scrap them. We just take them to the metal scrap, and we put everything in the cloud, all right? I want you to consider for a second a two-drawer filing cabinet. In the bottom drawer, drawer number one, is the first, the greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. The top drawer is, is the second commandment, the one that's like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. Scripture teaches that everything in life, all of our relationships, all of our words, All of our attitudes, our motivations, our interactions with people can be stored in one of those two drawers. Everything that happens to us, all of our worship, can be compartmentalized and put in files in one of those two drawers. But here's the problem. Christians tend to put communication issues exclusively in drawer two. They fail to realize that the root problem is almost always entirely in drawer one, loving the Lord our God with all of our heart, mind, and soul. Have you ever struggled in thinking with a a relationship with a person or something that's happened in your life? If you just would have said something a little bit differently, it could have saved a lot of heartache. If you would have just communicated more effectively, if you would have used this technique, if you would have said it this way, Perhaps this wouldn't have happened, or this thing wouldn't have caused this result. James uses a a summary, a metaphor, to summarize all of the section in which we are familiar with. He says there's an undeniable, unchangeable, organic connection between roots and fruits. The fruit inevitably goes down to the root. A fruit can't be produced that isn't organically connected to the root of whatever is being produced in that situation. There's also an undeniable, unchangeable, creative connection between the heart and our words. Listen, word problems are always related to heart problems. Word problems are always related to heart problems. Word problems are always related to heart problems. And here's what our heart does. It says, I want this. I want this relationship. I want this piece of chocolate. I want this amount of peace. I want this absence of conflict. I want, I want, I want to have this right now in my way, in any way, just give it to me because we are creatures who desperately want. We desire. We desire things strongly, and desires aren't all bad. They become bad when we desire things more than we desire God. But this is why you will never solve your communication problems by only dealing with your words. 
If I could come up here and give you a technique, I would do it. If we could solve communication problems by developing a better vocabulary, we would talk definitions, we would memorize words, we would become more eloquent, we would be more charismatic in our speech. But because word problems aren't just related to the mouth, they're distinctively related to the heart, there is no technique, there is no amount of help that you can give yourself to solve your communication issues in life. You've got a spouse that says, I just need you to be more gentle. Can you please be more soft-spoken when you say this? It's gonna help tremendously. Will you just control your tone? Your anger is coming across more than anything else, and I can't understand what you're saying. Why can't you express more compassion? Every time it seems like we come to this topic or this disagreement, and this is what happens. I love how, how one commentator uh, puts it. He says, small and influential, the tongue must be controlled. Satanic and infectious, the tongue must be corralled. Salty and inconsistent, the tongue must be cleansed. You don't cleanse the tongue with mouthwash and toothpaste. You cleanse the tongue by going straight and directly to the heart. Because word issues are heart issues. They're deeper. The things that come out of our mouth have a root to them. And if you're gonna deal with the fruit, you must go directly to the root. Otherwise, everything else is just cosmetic and covering up a deeper issue. I wanna uh, end just a, a little bit differently than, than we typically do and talk a little bit more about words. Number one, understand every single word you have belongs to God. Your words don't belong to you. They're not for you. God didn't give them to you for you. Your words belong to God. Do you realize that the first word that was ever spoken in the history of spoken words was not from a person to person? The first words ever spoken was not from man to man like me and Mark. It was not from man to woman like me and Linda. It was not from woman to woman. The first words ever spoken were communicated from God to man. He created words. That means he owns them. They belong to him. The second we speak words that are our own instead of words that are God's, we step off into a very slippery slope of living for ourselves instead of living for the glory of God as ambassadors of Christ. If we could approach all situations in life and understand that we have not just a God who does, but we have a God who speaks and who wants to speak to us and through us, it would change every way that we communicate with people. It would change our marriages, it would change our friendships, it would change those who are talking to, there is no doubt about it. The words that God spoke when he spoke them, let there be light. Let there be a sky above and water below. Let there be plants. Let there be mankind. These words are spoken from the Creator and He brought a perfect world into existence. He spoke into the world from nothing and He created something. And when He created man and woman, He created perfect communication. They had perfect communication with God. And they had perfect communication with each other. Somebody bring back life apart from the curse, please. In my marriage, I could use perfect communication. Anybody else? 
need perfect communication? I'll just speak for myself. Genesis 1 and 2, listen, nobody lied to each other. Nobody slandered against one another. Nobody spoke evil. Nobody spoke hateful words. Nobody was deceiving. Nobody was manipulating. Nobody was controlling with their words. Could you imagine what life would be like with perfect words and perfect communication? If history would have stopped at Genesis 2, there would never have been another miscommunication in the entire history of miscommunications. There would never have been a wrong interpretation. Words would solely function how God designed them to function, to bring glory to him, peace into our lives, health and happiness and joy. But all of our words have roots, not only in Genesis 1 and 2, but they have roots in Genesis 3. All of our words have roots, not only in Genesis 1 and 2, but they have roots in Genesis 3. In one fail swoop, when mankind decided to sin against God and go their own way, words went from wonder and worship and worth to deceit, division, and destruction. While Genesis 1 gave us God-spoken words, Genesis 3 gave us Satan-spoken words. And because of that, all of us, all of us, will not only have problems with our words, we will have problems because of our words. Satan spoke words that challenged God's authority. I want you to listen to Paul Tripp here. When, when Satan speaks and Adam and Eve act upon his words, the world of talk became a world of trouble. No longer do we simply reflect the image of God with our words, we also reflect the image of the serpent. No longer do we constantly speak up to God's standards, now we often speak down to the serpents. No longer are our words a faithful picture of God's design, too often they picture Satan's deceit. Talk is no longer easy or safe. Instead, we live in a world where lies manipulate, angry words wound, falsehood destroys, slander harms, condemnation tears down, and disrespectful words challenge authority that God has put in place. We are living in a Genesis 3 world. And so the first place we start is by looking in the mirror and listening to our own words. Number three, the true word above is our only solution to false words below. The true word from above is our only solution to false words below. Again, you and I have never spoken a neutral word in our entire lives. You and I will hurt one another by our words. We will slander one another. We will use guilt and shame to control and to manipulate others. We will wrongfully judge others, just like Derek was saying just a few seconds ago. The gospel is the only lasting solution to our word problems. Jesus is the only lasting solution to our word problems. Because his solution doesn't just deal with the mouth and what comes out, his solution deals with the heart and what's inside. His is the only solution that isn't cosmetic, but it's transformative. His is the only solution that takes something that is old, sinful, and ready to be done away with and brings in something new and life-giving and ready to be spread and multiplied. Because techniques, tricks, terrific words are not the problem. The gospel must go right to our heart. 
In Christ, we find truth. In Christ, we find God's words. In Christ, our war on words is winnable. The impossible becomes possible. The tongue actually becomes tameable, and our statements become redeemable. Words became flesh and actually dwelt among us that they might redeem everything that is sinful and so wrong, not only with us, but this entire world. When Jesus came to the earth in form of man, God indwelt his word among us. And it wasn't a word of condemnation. It was a word of hope. It was a word of life. It was a word of truth. Because Jesus did something for us that we couldn't do for ourselves, now therefore the rest of our lives should be lived not for ourselves, but for Jesus. And one of the most clear most definitive, most obvious places that you can show that to a lost and fallen world around you is by what you say on a daily basis. I've asked Derek and uh, the music team to come up here. Uh, I'm gonna invite them to come back and, and set things up. We're gonna end just a little bit differently uh, than we've ended in the past, just because um, there's a song that's, that's popular, it's out there, that was just a little too appropriate uh, to neglect for a, a sermon like this. Every single word that you speak, Proverbs tells us, has the ability to give life or to give death. So, Brian, you choose. You choose what you're going to do with your words. There's nothing, rarely, just about anything that I want more for Tulsa Bible Church than to be people who think before they speak, than to be a, a church that is always encouraging, never critical, always uplifting, never judgmental, always bringing life, never proceeding into death. Let the words of our mouth speak, speak truth. Let them bring life because we have life through the word, Jesus Christ. Let me pray. Father in heaven, um, Lord, we desperately need your help. We have a tongue problem, we have mouth issues. We have a word problem. It goes much deeper, it goes to the heart. For those of us who have trusted you, we thank you that you have redeemed us and you have given us a brand new heart. You've given us a new identity. Help us to walk in that, especially with the things we say. God, my prayer is that nobody would leave here this morning, number one, without knowing you, but number two, without strongly thinking about the words that they speak and how they reflect the character of God or reflect a kingdom below instead. Give us the courage, give us the faith, give us the strength to speak words that bring life and life eternal. Amen.